Welcome back to the Life in Digital podcast, where each month we speak to leaders in the digital sector navigating the ever-changing landscape. This week, in honour of International Women's Day, we are talking about female founders and funding. Our guest shared that female-founded teams performed 63% better than male-founded teams and generate around 35% higher return on investment for VC investors. Despite these impressive numbers, female founders only receive 2% of the investment capital available from angels and VCs. We sit down with Joe Eccleseed, the founder of BubbleTech, a geolocation plugin that supercharges existing mobile apps to drive the in-moment customer engagement, revenue and loyalty. We discuss her journey, the struggles of female founders and delve into the role of mentorship and networking in supporting female entrepreneurs. We hope you will enjoy. Welcome to the Life in Digital podcast. I'm here with Joe Eckersley, founder of Bubble Tech. Joe, thank you for joining today. You're welcome. It's been great to get this going, actually. We've had various attempts and really hectic times at the moment. Yeah, it is. I think last year just escalated the missing two years from the pandemic into one year. And I think everyone felt like they'd just been spat out the end of it by the time we got to Christmas. So. I know, yeah, it's been a bit of a, three years of a blur, really, hasn't yeah. it? We lumped it that for hours. It's Absolutely. Been a, been it's like three years of just like, it's three years, really? You know, we tried to launch our tech just literally in the January before the pandemic started. So 2019 or 2020? 2020. Oh, wow, so you were really, yep. as it all kicked off. Uh, and, you know, had great response from the music, entertainment and events industry, mm-hmm. you know, moving into that sort of space. Did some you know, good sales in February, lots of, you know, less of intent as think people start to get a bit worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we were still trying to close our investment round at that point in March 2020, had 400 over 500k round and the whole thing collapsed. So did yeah. the did the 400 come through or did it no, all, the all whole just the collapsed. whole lot collapsed? Wow, that must have been the so scary. Yeah. So, you know, we were lucky that we had still had about six months to run on an Innovate UK funding mm-hmm. that we've been lucky to, to get. But that has restrictions. You can only develop R&D around tech. You can't actually do any sales. Mm-hmm. So we had funding up to the November that year. And we were able to actually keep working on the tech. But from that point on, we were on furlough. And literally, you know, sort of it was almost impossible to actually do any work other than training at that point. Yes, as we could do. So, you know, there's so much you can do with training, but, you know, and upskill people, but at the end of the day, you're not actually getting your business any further down the line. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't so, wait to hear the, the onward journey from there to where we are today. But just before we go, for the for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us about Bubble Tech and what, what, what you do and what problems yeah. you solve? Yeah, okay. So Bubble is a mobile marketing technology company. So mm-hmm. we do a platform and various APIs that plug into apps. Mm-hmm. So our platform is like a content distribution platform. So mm-hmm. you, as an app owner, can put your content through that to distribute it to app users, but outside of app. So it's sort of technology that sits on top of the notification system, but it's mm-hmm. much more about engaging content. Mm-hmm. So it could be video, audio, surveys, you know, deep links through to you know, sort of web content, deep links into app. It, it's it's a way of actually create, turning your app into your own channel, basically. Okay, so who would your customers be? What sort of customer set seems to fit? fit so, nicer? well, to be honest, anyone who's got an app yeah. who's trying to engage an audience is, yeah. is, you know, whether that's a corporate app or whether that's a brand, you know, sort of we're working with, you know, sort of companies that are 
from all sorts of different areas. You know, originally it was music, entertainment and events apps, mm-hmm. still still relevant, but now we're talking to sort of councils, town centres, brands, you know, who've got apps who work with supermarkets, for example. You know, sort of, there's also, you know, in the sports sector, you know, fan apps and loyalty apps and stuff like that. So, you know, that's where we're getting the most interest for our for our technology. Yeah, and the mobile marketing space has been so fascinating over so many years. What what do you see in really effective and efficient within mobile marketing? Mode? What what can you see from your tech and others is really, is really um, working? It's a lot that's not working. That's yeah. the reason why we exist. I think you know, sort of ads in app don't work. That's yeah. disrupting a consumer's journey. Revenue streams very difficult to generate using mobile. Yeah. Again, we solve that one. So, and I think what's working is where. You're using mobile and respecting the fact that it's somebody's brain. Mm. It's the equivalent of our brain. Yeah, this is our memory. Do. This has everything in it that is our mechanism for communication. So therefore, respect that and value the real estate space that you've got on there as an app owner mm-hmm. and the way that you engage with an audience. It's important. And I think it's the evolution from, you know, sort of the, the way that we've been as advertisers before, which is quite disrespectful. Mm-hmm. and quite intrusive and invasive and certainly doesn't respect privacy. So actually switching it to being an actual relationship where engagement and authenticity and you know, sort of building a trusting relationship with your users and your, your fans, if you like, your brand yeah. fans, is, is becoming more and more important. So ways to do that. We're part of the solution. We're part of the ways that you can do that. Yeah. And how do you see people using bubble tech really efficiently? If you're thinking of who's kind of, I don't give examples of who's using it well or how they're using it well. Well, one of our one of our clients is a company who have an app that is for students who are learning difficulties. Mm-hmm. They are encouraged by their university to record their, their lectures and their sessions. And as they leave their the area of the, the college or university where they're where they're, they've done their recording, they're then encouraged to send the, that up to my client for transcript. Mm-hmm. Now the client gets paid for the number of transcripts, and essentially you know, so they are encouraging users to then do that bit of sending up the content, and you know, sort of actually being able to do that in the right place at the right time with the right type of content for the group that you're targeting who've got special needs is really important. So we enable them to do that, and it's making a massive difference to the the, the quantity of of uploads that they're that they're getting as far as transcript requests are concerned. Yeah, which is brilliant, isn't it? and it's incredibly useful to the end user. But I think well. I think one of the one of the game changers in the industry who spent several years, I think it was two years and nine partners, was Burger King. So mm-hmm. Burger King actually during the time that we were building Bubble, mm-hmm. they set up. 20,000 geofences around McDonald's car parks. They nudged people who got the Burger King app on their phone as they entered the car park, they they broke a geofence and they were served with a one cent whopper offer. So they were going into McDonald's and actually asking the cashier or the person on the desk for the whopper. Obviously <laughs> the staff were sending them out of the, burger, out of the McDonald's to the Burger King down the road, or they were turning their car around and going straight to the Burger King. Now, that campaign took Burger King's app from 686 in the App Store to number one in 48 hours. Wow. It was a nine-day campaign. It gave a 37 to 1 return on investment. They took about £15 million additional revenue. It was phenomenal. And they won loads of Cannes Lions Awards. It was incredible. But what it did for us, whilst we didn't do that piece of tech, actually what we were doing was building a piece of tech that does exactly the same thing and more for any app. Mm -hmm. So our tech in 30 minutes plugs in. And literally, we'll do the same thing. 
So, you know, sort of it, it, the potential for it as an engagement tool in, and, and others, you know, just enhancing that, that comms channel, making it more of a comms channel and not relying on Facebook and Instagram and all the changing algorithms and changing positioning in those sort of very controlled environments is creating a lot more freedom for, for app owners, really. Yeah, and you said it plugs in the 30 minutes, so from an integration point of view, it is that seamless to, yeah. to integrate. Yeah, it's really easy. Mm. That's cool. Because often <laughs> the more easy to yeah. well, it, we want to it can be really I mean, obviously, we're, challenging to, you know, to from a developer perspective, you've got yeah. to make it easy because we're dealing with marketers yeah. who want the tech. So then they've got to go to their development team and say, can you plug it in? That means that the development team's got to fit it into their, their sprints. So they want something that's quick and easy. It's going to save them having to spend two years and nine partners building it and hard coding it, something similar into their app. And lots happens in two years. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the pace that digital adoption happens, I mean, mm. even since the pandemic, it's escalated enormously. Yeah, so it's been much. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a lot would change in two years. So coming on to that, in two years, what would have changed? A lot more adoption of immersive content, I think, and a lot more tools like ours that will enable you to engage with immersive content in situ, so in the real world. In store. Yeah, in the street, you know, sort of outside a building, at an event, at a concert, at a football match, you know, sort of just the ability to actually have much more engaging content that's that you've had a hand in choosing. So the whole zero-party data where you're actually able to, you know, you're using as a brand you're using data that's been provided by the user so you've set preferences saying i like this i want this i don't want that i'm moving house next next month so send me anything relating to that so you as a as an app user are controlling mm -hmm. the data that is being shared with the brand but also the information that you're then receiving from them yeah that sort of that that's not personalization to the nth degree like we have where you've got third-party cookies tracking your every move and getting it completely wrong because we're all individuals yeah that's you actually as a user being able to say i want this please send me this and the brand complying because of course they want to get it right you know that's the whole aim so why not just ask and have a good experience yeah. and just um, so i'm interested so in terms of who's creating the content with bubble it can be the app owner can create content, but it can yep. be user-driven too. So, so it's a two-way street. Yeah, I mean, because the user can complete surveys and yeah. you know, sort of provide information back to the, the brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah that's, that's cool. So from a background for yourself, I can really yeah. see the, there's the PR piece and the, and the tech piece. So can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey to date? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so I started working in a newspaper on the ad side, Thompson Regional Newspapers at the time in Bath. I also worked for... And was that B2B? It was, yeah, B2B advertising yeah. on, on the and doing all the features. Yeah. So I was doing all of that. And then I started working for Global Radio. And so I worked for them. London? No. Down in Barstow? Down in Barstow. Yeah. And then that was, you know, obviously across the whole of the, the Southwest area. But I wanted to do... P I, I really loved PR as an mm -hmm. industry. And the fact that it was... It just was all about communicating. And I think I just decided I was going to, I tried to get a job. Yeah. No one would take me on because I've got no experience. So I just decided to start doing some freelance stuff myself. Yeah. For an old boss who had a restaurant chain. Yeah, so that was initially where, where I was sort of focused. And, you know, he was great. He took me on and, you know, I was doing all sorts of stuff very successfully and getting loads of media coverage for him. So other people came along. So it was all for my living room floor at that point. And, you know, so over the years, I've... Yes, I've had 
PR companies, you know, sort of gone back to being a consultant, you know, and it's all been around actually, you know, sort of I've got a 20-year-old daughter and a 21-year-old, her best friend who's lived with us for six years. So I've really got two daughters. Yeah. But I've, you know, sort of everything I've been doing, because I've been a single parent since I was three months pregnant. Yeah, wow. So the whole thing has been actually around my daughter. So I probably would have had a much bigger business years ago if I hadn't been trying to get back from London to pick my daughter up from nursery and not incur the £1 per minute fine that you get if you're not there on time. So when I was running down Paddington platform trying to get the train, that was why. A Barcelona, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And it, it's, you know, it's always been driven around being a single parent. So as a female founder and an older female founder, yeah. I think the resilience from the last 20 years actually stands me in good stead, but it also means that I always feel a little bit like I'm behind because people look at me and go, oh, well, hang on a minute, you're an older female in tech. What, what's that all about? Well, years of experience in the industry, but also the resilience of being a single parent, actually, I think, you know, for female founders out there who might be listening to this, it, you know, you can do it. You can do it. And what, what would you, if, I know everyone's journey is going to be different, but if you were thinking about being a female founder, what do you think the challenges challenges are? <sighs> Let me give you some interesting stats. Yeah, please do. I just wrote these down this morning because I was doing a bit of research and also because I know it's a really hot topic at the moment. Yeah. I did a little survey with, with one of the networks that's got about 100 In a WhatsApp group. In a WhatsApp group. Yeah, they? they are great. But so I asked if they were if they were panicking, mm -hmm. one, two if they were surviving, or three if they were thriving. Every single one was either panicking or you know the only one that was actually ricocheting between surviving and thriving was because they just managed to get investment and hired a, a great team. Mm. So you know it's it's challenging, but these stats are standout stats for me. So twenty four percent of founders are women. Okay, female founded teams perform sixty three percent better than male-founded teams and generate 35% higher return on investment. For VC, for investors? Yeah. That's remarkable. Yet, female founders only receive 2% of the investment capital available from angels and VCs. Oh my God. 2%, so 98% goes to male founders. Of a 24%, 75% split? No, no. Of, uh, of all, the, the total, no, I get all total investment and 24% of founders are women. So, you know, it's like they get 2% of huge, the investment. It's, yeah, it's, huge, it's ridiculous. Huge. And yet they perform 63% better and they generate a 35% higher return on investment. But that doesn't seem to count. It's quite incredible, really, that those stats even exist. And I know there are people out there like David Horn, who's written you know, sort of a, a book about you know, supporting female founders and how to get investment, etc. But the reality is we shouldn't be in that position. You know, we have as much to offer and as much value and a whole shed load more emotional intelligence when it comes to businesses like ours, for example, where it's about engagement. And I think, you know, sort of it's, it's frustrating. I'm it's sure really it frustrating, you know, because I know that, you know, we're one of the businesses that are panicking. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had investment over the last year, but in a piecemeal fashion that's enabled us to keep going. And, you know, we still need investment, but we can't, we're just about... It's called the valley of death for a reason. You know, we're at that point between a sort of startup and scale up where we're literally in that pre-seed stage of not quite generating, we're generating some revenues, but not quite enough to actually be viable for the VCs. We're still at the angel level. But, you know, when you've got, you know, so if you had a pandemic, you've got an economic, 
you know, sort of climate that is as it is at the moment, it's no wonder so many businesses are panicking. And I think, I think we need to start being really real about that because the more we talk about the fact that we're surviving because we're desperate for investors to invest and clients to come on board and not think that you're about to collapse, the reality is that a lot of us aren't. A lot of us literally have weeks and we're scrabbling trying to find a way to survive. And if we were more honest as a community of businesses and founders about the position that we're all in, we might get more help from government. Yes. I was going to say, how do you think, so where does the help need to come from? Yeah, it, well, I think it has to come from investors, mm-hmm. you know, sort of not being unrealistic about their expectations of where businesses are right now and bringing more to the table. So yes, bringing their money, but also bringing their support, opening up their networks. You know, what is stopping them? They, they already have the, you know, so the, the, the ability to do that. I think, you know, sort of there are significant losses that will be made for the economy. And I'm not saying be more philanthropic, but maybe I am. You know, maybe, you know, so some of the criteria, you need to start looking a bit more, or they need to start looking a bit more to the future potential of these businesses and take into consideration what we've actually gone through and survived over the last few years. Yeah, it's been brutal. You know, yeah. because I've had investors say to me, you know, well, yeah, you know, why why haven't you made any progress over the last three years? You're still not really properly out of the gate. I'm like, pandemic? And it's like, it doesn't seem to, because it didn't affect them. Mm-hmm. It's like, they can't seem to understand how it's affected founders. You know, and not just that. I mean, as a female founder, my family, it's dramatically affected my family. You know, that that, that period of time meant that, you know, my, my, my girls were not working. It was really hard for them. They weren't able to leave the house. They weren't able to socialise in the way that, that they would do, age instead of 18, which is what they were at the time. Yeah, it's such a critical age for actually you know, being out there. And that nor were they able to go and do the education they wanted. They weren't able to do any of that. So, you know, it's hardly surprising that one of my girls is you know, seriously suffering from mental health issues right now, you know, and I'm having to deal with that at home as a single parent as well, as run my business, but I'm still running my business, you know, and I think it's, it's frustrating. Right now it's frustrating because I think the criteria by which investors are looking to invest, they need to take a long, hard look at A, the complete and utter, you know, sort of obsession with fintech, and just start realizing that there are a lot of other businesses out there that are not fintech, that actually, or or medtech, or you know, sort of. I know that we need investment in environmentally yeah, green tech. global green tech, etc. That's important. But right now, there's going to be a much bigger crisis if the businesses that are not in those sectors are not supported, and the founders that are in those not in those sectors are not supported. And since I've never dealt with you know, raising money or speaking to Asian investors, so what, yeah, what is that experience? What's your experience about being like where you have to go and yeah, raise, raise cash? Every investor wants a different deck. Yeah. Every investor thinks your deck isn't right, but some will say, oh, it's, it's fantastic. Others will say, oh, it's, it's, not, it's got too much on it or it's not got enough on it or it's not got this information in it. You know, I think, I think investors need to do more talking to the actual founders and mm-hmm. not just reading a deck because a lot of people aren't, so good at getting across stuff in a deck format. Why should they be? It's like saying, you know, so why can't you know, a fish, yeah, a fish climb a tree? You know, yeah. it's the same thing. <laughs> it's ridiculous because they weren't made to do that. You know, 
I, yes, I can put together decks, but it, you know, I literally have over the years put together probably over a thousand different decks trying to get it perfect. Mm. It's never going to be perfect. I find I get investment when people talk to me because they can see and they can understand, they can ask me the questions they want to ask me. So make more time to do that. You know, don't just sit there going through deck after deck after deck. You know, it, it just is, I think there's some fatal flaws in the industry. I don't know how to solve them. Mm. I don't know how to solve them. That's their job. But it's not, you know, the, the majority of businesses in this country are small businesses. Mm. You know, that is probably one of the greatest roots for growth and employment. And yet a large proportion of them are dying on their feet right now. And I yeah. think you know, sort of the investment community needs to take a long, hard look at what it, how it functions. You know, there are absolutely thousands of investors out there. And I know because I've probably contacted most of them over the years, <laughs> you know, but you, you rarely even get a reply. And, you know, we're an award-winning business. We've just, you know, we're, we're, I can't, I can't tell you how far we've got in this, but, you know, sort of we are, we've been very successful in the Design Innovation Awards, which is an international competition. Over 8,010 companies have taken part, or products have taken part from 43 different countries. And we are, you know, sort of one of the prominent ones in that okay. competition, I would say. But, you know, that's product. That's about our product being a, a good product. You know, I've been named rising star for Computer Weekly a couple of years or a few years ago, just before the pandemic. And then you know, sort of now most more, more recently, Cain Magazine has, has recognised and put me on the shortlist for Female Frontiers Transforming Tech, which is our industry. That's our industry magazine. Now, you know, so if I'm getting that recognition from the industry and we have a massive pipeline of clients wanting to onboard, and yet we're a tiny team that needs resources to be able to scale the tech, you know, sort of our tech team and, you know, get more investment into marketing, you know, it's like, it, it, it seems like we have to jump through many, many more hoops than a lot of the companies I see that are invested in where it's a young, you know, sort of late twenties, early thirties male who's come from a university, who's got an idea, hasn't necessarily done much proof, but has got a little bit of proof of market who gets a lot of money thrown at them to yeah, give them a chance crazy. to actually progress it. And I just, I, I think it, it's, it doesn't feel very even and balanced at all. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, sort of, I think that, that it, it needs have, to change. I was going to say, def, uh, I'm really naive to kind of, do, do funds have any rules around where they have to dis spend their money? I guess they have complete freedom. There's not so much going into, you know, No, they don't have any, they don't have any rules. They do what they want. Do what they want, yeah. You know, unfortunately, you know, we are a society that lives with a lot of unconscious bias. Yes. You know, we do that around race. I think, you know, so that's been covered a lot over the last few years. Mm -hmm. But we also do it around, you know, sort of women in business particularly. And, you know, older women in business and black women in business, you know, that's still an issue. You know, I think that it's time that there were some industry standards introduced to level up the playing field. And is, from government funding, what, what sort of funding were you able to receive? I remember we got some for, tra for training when we were very young, but that was about it really. But we don't no, have we, we've, had, we've had Innovate UK grants yeah. historically, which have been exceptionally helpful in enabling us to spend time on R&D and function without investment for mm. periods of time. But then we get criticised because mm. we're carrying a debt from that which is on very favourable terms, but, you know, it's like that seems to be an issue as well. And we also don't get the benefits of R&D tax credits in their full 
yes, in their full entirety because we've got grant funding. Yes. So therefore we have to yes, sort of apply under the RDEC scheme as opposed to the small business scheme. So we get much less back in tax credits as well because we've had grants. So there's always, you know, a counterbalance there. And it's, you know, it, it's been good to have that to be able to build the business, but then to then, you know, sort of find the struggle that we've got now because of the economic climate, it's, you know, it's very wearing. And, you know, yeah. I, I think... Well, what support networks have you found have been good, if any, you know, in terms of where you do get your support? Where, I, what, what, I think... What's been, what's been good? I think what I've found... During the pandemic, there was a small Friday group that got together of an evening on a Friday and we were all virtual and we all used to just get a, a, a glass of wine, and, of wine. Yeah, <laughs> and sit and just chat and support each other. Now, mm -hmm. there were only about 12, 15 of us in that group mm -hmm. and different people would come at different times. We didn't always talk about anything to do with work. We just supported each other and yeah. just if somebody did have a major issue we talked it through and all that that was fantastic and I think any of those you know sort of those environments where you've got a group of people who are function at the same level mm -hmm. you know like female founders who are at the same stage in their business any groups that pull people together like that you've got that community and you've got that ability to lean on others mm -hmm. and they, they're in the yeah. same boat and I think, you know, so that's been a real positive that's come out of the last few years because I think people rely on those networks far more now. Yeah. But I do and think we need to be honest with each other about where we're at. I was going to say, you've got your WhatsApp group that you mentioned you could reach yeah. out to this morning with 190 yes. female founders. How much kind of sharing of real information around where people are really at, how people are really feeling is there? Not a lot there. No. You know, I think people ask for help on specific things to do with the business, mm. but it's not actually really encouraging us to be real about the challenges we're actually really facing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think mental health is a really big issue. And I think we're going to find that the mental health of founders is deteriorating because we don't have those environments where you can be really, you know, sort of Chatham House rules honest about what actually you're experiencing and get the support to be able to carry through. And I think that's another thing that investors need to, you know, shape up on. If you're a shareholder in a business, I challenge you to contact the founder and ask them if they're okay. Because I've not had a single one of my my shareholders contact me and ask me if I'm okay in the last three years. Mm. Not one single one, and I've got over 20. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any advisors who are different to shareholders? Yes, when we can afford them. Yeah, of course, they come with the cost, yeah. You know, uh, but... You know, and it's great to have that when you can afford it. And it's great to have that, you know, sort of CEO mentor when you can afford it. But who can afford it right now when we really need it? Mm -hmm. And just going back to one of the other points, I think with the support piece, the other challenge is if you go onto LinkedIn or how you promote your business, you always have to put, everyone puts the good messages yeah. out there. So you very rarely see it when you're going, it's really shit at the Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. And then suddenly you find someone's committed suicide. Yeah. You know, and nobody knew. Mm. It's because we don't have an environment where we can be real. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's, it's a real issue. You see that through, you know, mental health statistics across across yeah. the UK. But I think at a founder level, there's a, yeah, I don't know your experience, there's a perception that it's always, always the best job to be doing. Yeah. Uh, without the, the, I, the I reality. I challenge that and say <laughs> yeah. that you have to be a complete idiot to be a founder <laughs> yeah. of the business. Yes, I can, um, yes, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can share that, share that yeah. view at times for sure. So if you were thinking about, I know it's a, off the cuff, yeah, actions that founders could take together that would make it a more positive experience. What would be the, the one or two things you'd really, really seek seek others to do? I think sharing, 
I think just being able to, you know, sort of share without judgment. I think, you know, there needs to be more network around, you know, sort of founders to support them. Mm-hmm. I think whether that's a group of founders who've just got together and formed a breakfast club, but they're not necessarily, they're trusting each other to talk about the real challenges they're facing or whether it's a bigger thing that we need. But I think it's something that does need to be put in place. Yeah. And I think quite urgently. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, shareholders of businesses should be asking the founders how they are. You know, I think that's something that could be put in place very quickly. It's, 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 it's remarkable, actually. I'd that, that's one point I'd really, really, yeah, just really heard. It's, uh, it takes so little to ask, how are you? You know, we can obviously decline it. Yeah. How, how are you? But used to have been, I think in the city, trading companies used to have psychologists, didn't they? Yeah. To really support the traders. And it's just kind yeah. of like, if I'm a VC and I've got, you know, several a roster of founders, that's that's the key yeah. role, I think, to, to be on hand to give that to give that support. So Joe, in terms of advice to female founders, what would you what would you provide if you were giving advice or you obviously can, what, what what do you say to people in in, in your in, in your position as, as a woman who's starting a, a company in tech? I wish there was a better structure or a better place to find all the resources, but there are resources out there to support you in your business journey. You know, I wish it was easier to find them. I wish that they were all gathered together in one place so you could pick the things that actually were appropriate to you. And, you know, I think it's, I think that there is a very strong opportunity for female founders to make their voice more heard as far as the investment community is concerned and to continue to prove that we are very good at running businesses and very good at getting return on investment for investors. So, you know, finding a way to actually communicate that and to you know, sort of be more visible as female founders if you are successful. Mm. And also, you know, so then you know, make it your responsibility to share what you've learned with other female. You know, I call on those that are successful and have made it. How many of you are mentoring another female founder who's coming up through the ranks? Mm. You know, it's a big old boys' networks. Where's the Where's the female one? Yeah, and fund wise, have you noticed any funds or, or VCs in particular? There are... are some. Yeah, there are some. I know that David Horn, who has been very, he, he's a book for female founders, which is doing exceptionally well, mm-hmm. helping them with funding. And I know that they are seeking to set up a female founders fund, which will open later on this year. And I think, you know, so things like Capital Pilot with their boost fund has been very good in, you know, taking out a lot of the bias as well, because they, that the way that they actually select companies for mm-hmm. investment is, is, is very innovative and not based on any, they can't through their process. Yeah, do it from a bias yeah. point point of view so you're sort of looking for those funds and I think there are more of them coming through but you know I think those funds also need to be more accessible more visible and more clear about you know one of the things that really irritates me is investors and investment funds are not clear about whether they've got funds to deploy mm-hmm. you know, they don't they're not honest about what they're actually able to deploy they don't you know sort of they're, they're not clear about their investment criteria up front and I think they need to get a bit clearer because they waste a lot of our time as founders mm. you know they really do and it, it's it's not fair to do that you know it really isn't so hopefully there'll be change there as well yeah and with the the, you know, the awards and the recognition are coming for yourself and yeah. which is great seeing you've got you know clients who want to want to use the tech if you looked at the next year I know it's going to be a tough one to get through what would your hopes and aspirations be well my first hope would be that we get the additional couple of hundred 
ground that we need to yeah, close this current straight. round. Yeah. Then that, that moves us into a larger seed raise later on this year, which is our intention. Mm-hmm. We want to scale the team. We want to be able to you know, sort of bring in you know, sort of more expertise around our tech and around our sales and marketing side of things. And you know, so we really want to have the, you know, sort of the, the we have a very solid pipeline with a lot of companies that want to start using our tech. Yeah. But we're a tiny team of seven. Yeah. You know, however big an illusion we create of being a bigger, bigger company, we're actually a tiny team of seven. And I know many companies do that. Yes. You know, so I know I'm not alone in saying that or probably presenting anything that people didn't already know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, I think we want to really be a prominent player in the immersive and engaging content distribution space using mobile. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where we want to be. And this year is going to be pivotal in actually... You know, taking us from struggling startup to successful scale up, and that's our that's our ambition for this year. And I'm not going to look further ahead because every time I try and do that, we get a pandemic, a recession, or a uh, a Brexit, or something of that ilk. So it's been a rough five years. <laughs> it has it's been, been a very rough five both years. Both things yeah. in the in the other order. Yeah. yeah, it really has. Yeah, very difficult. Okay, cool. Well, from yeah. You've got the, uh, as you know, the, the, the background and the pedigree, and I'm sure for Bubble it will be a, be a good year. And I really hope that the funding comes through. Yeah, so any investors, please just I've, when, hit when, me when up. this stops, I've got some, um, <laughs> I've got some ideas. A big thank you to Joe and Ed for this week's episode. If you want to find out more about the work that Joe and Bubble do, we will link to them in our show notes and via our website. Do subscribe to be the first to hear from us and join us next time for another episode of Life in Digital.